to Psalm, uh, Psalm 36. Psalm 36 will be the text of this morning's message. You might be thinking, well, we were in 1 Samuel. Why are you, uh, why are you jumping over into Psalms? Um, and the reason is because, one, I felt the Lord wanted me to, but two, um, in the next phase that we're in, in in Samuel, we're introduced to David, King David, as a man after God's own heart. And so I thought it would be good for us to, to pause and, and, uh, and see what was in David's heart. And Psalm 36 is a psalm of David, and in it I think we find why why David is termed a man after God's own heart. As broken as he was, um, there's something that set him apart from his predecessor, King King Saul. Um, as I read this, I want you to take note of something, and, and that is that uh, many have seen echoes of Genesis 1 through 3 in this, in this psalm, as if David was looking at life through the lenses of Genesis 1 through 3, uh, not only in the fact that he articulates in the first four verses how, how sin landslides someone's life down towards death, but, but also his, his, uh, his view of God's um, abundant provision. And there are words that you find in Genesis like a, um, like a river of, of the Lord's delights, kind of a reflection or an echo of, of the river that flowed out of Eden, or the word light, in your light do we see light, which is, um, of course, the first creation of, of God's um, a voice was, was let there be light. So there's echoes of, of Genesis in this, in this chapter. Let me ask you if uh, you would stand with me in honor of, of God's word um, as I read. I'm going to read through the psalm. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the, wo- the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Go ahead and take your seats and let me pray. Father, we are, are grateful to be here. I am grateful to be here. Um, I am so grateful for your word. I'm thankful for the fact that in it we get a, a picture of your heart and, and who you are, your being, um, and you are nothing less than glorious and beautiful. Um, Lord, I'm thankful that you have, have seen fit to win our hearts to obey you by your love, um, that when we see the display of your immeasurable, steadfast love, we are, are, are called forth to love you back in return and to, um, to follow you and be drawn to you, um, to be attracted to you. Um, we just ask that you would do that this morning. I pray that, that our eyes would be wide open to your, to your glory and to your word and, and all that you are to us. I, I pray that you would 
uh, draw out of us our affections of joy and love and humility and, and uh, desire and longing for who you are. Because you, have, uh, you have, have stated over and over again the greatest privilege as well as the greatest commandment is to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we can't do that unless we understand your love first. And so I pray you'd bless the teaching of your word. Um, may, may your people hear a, a word for you, from you, and um, that will help them, that will heal them, that will um, convict, that will uh, just enlarge who you are in their hearts. And I pray this in the, in the name of our precious Jesus who gave his life for us, rose for us, and is coming again for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you will be... Uh, we'll know the name of David Brooks. Um, maybe many of you don't, but he is a, a journalist that that uh, that has written some books and he writes for various newspapers. One of which is the is the New York Times, and um, he wrote a, an article about a year ago. It came out in May of, of uh, 2011 that caught my attention, and I actually downloaded it and read it because the, because of the title. And the title uh, goes like this: It's like it's not about you. Now <laughs> it's the title. It's not about you. And I'm thinking, okay, well that's that, 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 that makes me curious. Um, so what is it about, you know? So, so I, um, I, I read the article, and it's a rather insightful, observant um, writing on uh, how self-centered our culture is, in particular in the way that we address and speak to the younger generation. Um, by the time you get to the end of his little article, he kind of sum, summarizes everything with the final paragraph, which I want to I read for you, because um, this is a person who, from what I understand, does not know the Lord, but he sees something in culture that we ought to see as well. This is what he writes. He says, this is the last paragraph of his article. He says, today's grads, mind you, he's writing in May of 2011, graduation time, so he's speaking of college graduates. Uh, today's grads enter a cultural climate that preaches the self as the center of life. That is, the culture preaches constantly. And at the center of that is the self. He goes on to say, but of course, as they age, as these college students engage life, get older, and face hardship, so forth, uh, they'll discover that the tasks of life are at the center. Fulfillment is a byproduct of how people engage their tasks and can't be pursued directly. Most of us are egotistical. And most are self-concerned most of the time. But it's nonetheless true that life comes to a point only in those moments when the self dissolves into some task. It's, uh, it's, it's rather uh, insightful writing for somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Now, I don't, I don't buy where he ends his argument, namely that, that at the center of life are the tasks that we do and that only in engaging those tasks and losing the self do we find fulfillment as a byproduct. Uh, I don't buy that as the center of life, and, and if you're a Christian, you shouldn't either, because something else is very much at the center. But, but the statements that really caught my attention was, one, that that is indeed what our culture preaches. It's a, it's a very self-centered message, and that self-centered mention, uh, message, as you kind of sift through here, is, is, a, is a message of, of fulfillment, of um, in, in engaging life, and choosing, making choices, and taking directions which will maximize your personal fulfillment. Um, fulfillment. First definition in Webster's Dictionary is to make full. And it is the prevailing philosophy of the world in which we live, the principle by which most live, is they make choices based upon what will fulfill them the most, what will fill them up. Um, and it goes in almost every direction. Um, and it is the almost assumed 
um, belief of that philosophy that there is fulfillment out there. You just got to seek it, find it, work towards it. Um, so that we're trained by our culture, which preaches the self at the center and this kind of fulfillment um, philosophy of life, that there's, there's fulfillment in, if you're a romantic, in a, in a relationship with, with somebody else um, to, to make you full, the soulmate that will complete you, you know, Tom Cruise and so forth. You complete, 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 complete me, see if it comes again. Um, but looking for fulfillment in, in, in another person or, or a career, that's another big one, is which career do I choose? And oftentimes the message that people will be given is, well, where will you be most satisfied and most fulfilled? And so people proceed on making decisions and taking routes towards this idea of fulfillment out there somewhere in a job that they do. Um, and I, I believe that, that that kind of idea or philosophy of life has, has um, been... Um, embraced almost without question, um, and by people in the church too, so that we can often reinforce the idea as parents and as friends to say things like, you know, um, follow your dream. And the dream usually being uh, consistent or consisting of things in the world, like another person, a relationship, or maybe it's a, a place to live, location, location, location. And maybe if you find the right place, the right community, and have the right job, well, then there's fullness out there. And we can easily say and reinforce those things to our children, believing and supposing that there is, in fact, something that will fill you up, something out there in creation, without everyone stopping and saying, Wait, 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 how does this really stack up to the gospel and the scripture and Christianity? Is that, is that what we ought to believe and what we ought to run our lives on and, and teach our children that, you know what, you need to find something that completes you or whatever that is in your, in your world. If it's an engineer, um, then, then chase that because it will fulfill you. And uh, this, this particular message is, is uh, designed to hopefully show you that that's a complete and utter lie. Um, as I've thought about this, as I've wrestled with it in my own life and also wrestled with it with the scriptures, you, ne you never really find God telling his people to set their hearts on created things, but to set their hearts on the kingdom of heaven, to set their hearts on the things above, to lay up for themselves, for ourselves, treasures, not here, but, but where God's presence is, that our heart is attached to something different, and that's where our dream is. Is, is, is the Lord himself. And I think that the idea, the prevailing philosophy, or of what, what this uh, David Brooks here talks about is preaching the self, um, of fulfillment, is a lie that's just packaged in fancy language. An ancient lie. You can hear the same exact, but in different language, um, in the temptation in the garden of, Ede, uh, of Eden with Eve, in which this... This woman, the first woman, our first great, 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 had a whole bunch of great grandmothers, in which she's surrounded by an overabundance of, of food and beauty in the place that she's given, designed and architected and furnished by God himself. So she's the only woman in, in history to have had a perfect husband, um, except Jesus you could throw in there too, the better husband, but you know what I'm, I mean. And then to have a, a place where she could have face-to-face, -face, close encounter, first direct encounter with, with God himself. God and, a, and, a, and another person created in the image of God in a perfect place of abundance. And then the deceiver comes along and 
points out a carrot at the end of a stick that she is denied. Um, let me just do a rough translation. She's surrounded by everything, has everything. There's an overabundance. But he comes along and says, did, did God really say this? And, and he goes on to say, um, you know, the Lord knows that on the day that you eat it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like him. And you're going to know good from evil. You're going to be, you're going to have the knowledge that God himself has. And in that moment, he created a deception in which she, if she believed the lie, would feel a lack. Like maybe that tree is something that will somehow add something on to what I already have. In other words, maybe if I have that, I'll be fuller than I, than I am with my, my God and my, my husband in this perfect place. It's the carrot at the end of the stick. It's believing that there's fulfillment somewhere out there apart from the Lord. And we know the story. She believed the lie. Went for the carrot at the end of the stick, believing that somehow it would fill her. And when she took it and ate it, she was empty. And left naked and guilty. The lie was proven to be a complete, utter tragedy both for her, for her husband, and the rest of mankind. It just completely landslides from there. Brothers killing brothers in war and violence. So, so devastating that the Lord had to wipe out an entire population on this planet. That's all because she listened to the, to the lie that there's something else out there that will make you more complete than you already are with the Lord. That's why I say the whole idea of a, like a fulfillment uh, philosophy of life is I'm going to seek a, a relationship or, um, or a career or, or, or a hobby believing that there's some kind of fulfillment out there that I don't already have to make me full. And I believe that's, that's exactly what's, what's in mind here in, in um, Psalm 36. David speaks of how transgression works in the heart. He says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And I want you to note that word eyes because it's used twice in the first two verses. There's no fear of God before his eyes. In other words, um, there is no sense of awe, of overwhelmed um, sense of God's greatness and majesty and splendor. There is none of that in the eyes of his heart. For... Verse 2, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Now let me put verse 1 and 2 together. Um, We're told in the first part, first verse, that it's the transgression that speaks to the heart of a person deep. And I think that transgression is also what speaks and flatters the man in his own eyes. That is... um, fills his eyes with himself, a, 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 a sense of pride, of vanity, that he's larger than reality. So you notice the contrast. See, there is no fear of God before his eyes. God is not the overwhelming center of the gaze of his heart, but rather him, he himself is a very self-centered. David Brooks would say this is the preaching of the self. Is my, my, I, I am the centerpiece of my life. It's the basic message. It's all about you. I mean, that's a way of paraphrasing it. It's about you. And you know what? You deserve more than you have right now. And so whatever you have to manipulate to get it so that you can, because life is about you, have it and be filled, take it. 
And it twists him inside, and we see that it just, again, landslides if you make your way through the rest of the verse. He's listened to the transgression speaking to his heart, which makes him the center of the universe. And as a result, we find out his speech is contaminated, full of trouble and deceit, not just his speech, but also his actions. It says that he has ceased to act wisely and do good, the idea being, or implication being, at one point he did do good and did act wisely, but now that he's listened to the lie, now he acts foolishly. Not just his speech and his actions, but his commitments. It says that he plots trouble while on his bed when he should be sleeping. He's trying to figure out how to get what he wants. And in the end, he doesn't reject evil. To the opposite, he actually embraces it. It's just all from believing or listening to the transgression that speaks to the heart and flatters and and makes the self the center of the universe. And if you fast forward to the end of the psalm, you see where it ultimately leads. David tells us that there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. They don't get up anymore. It's dead in, in the dust. They don't rise. That's the, that's the trajectory of a life that's lived for the self and a life that's lived trying to fill oneself with created things. Now, most of us intellectually know this to be true. Um, some of the richest, most wealthy people are the most miserable people alive. I think most of us intellectually would say that no matter how much money we have, we still don't feel filled. Um, I think most of us would acknowledge that there is no true relationship, marriage, girlfriend, boyfriend, brother, sister, mother, father, that actually fills us up. We'd acknowledge that. I think most of us who have found a career would acknowledge that, you know, it doesn't fill me up. There are hard parts about my, my job doesn't fill me up. So we know it intellectually, but do we believe it here? It's not your stated belief uh, that's that's your real belief. It's your functional belief. What actually functions in your life to govern your choices and your actions ultimately is what you believe. So if we as Christians live on the basis or the principle, the idea, the assumption that there is fullness out there in the created world, I just need to find it and work for it or, uh, or Christianize it in the way of praying for it, that I could be fulfilled by some created thing. If we really believe that, then we're operating according to the lie, not the truth. We've bought into the same basic message that the world preaches and David Brooks talks about. A self-centered, self-fulfillment kind of life. And we're listening in the end, at the end of the day to the voice of the evil one, not the voice of God. Now David takes us in a different direction. By contrast to the man who allows the lie to be spoken to his heart, elevating the self, and then kind of die, descending into, a, into death. And he writes, this is what I think makes him a man after God's own heart. He lives on the basis of another principle, and it's a, it's a personal principle of, of God's, God's steadfast love. He writes, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends. You notice the right turn? Talks about the guy who doesn't embrace evil, and then he goes and he just starts, starts uh, ascribing to the Lord and declaring what he knows about the heart of God. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast. You save, O Lord. 
We come to know things and feel a sense of awe when we make comparisons. And, and the Bible does this all the time. To what shall we compare God's love? And in the Rolodex of creation, looking for things that are massive, the biggest thing he can think of is, is the sky above and the universe. I mean, there's nothing bigger in, in creation than the universe itself. So what is he going to compare God's love to? Well, the biggest thing he can see, and that is the expanse of the universe itself. Your, your, your steadfast love, O oh Lord, extends to the heavens and beyond. And that that love is a, is a, is a, is a righteous love and a faithful love and, 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 a, and a just love. Notice he compares. This is the, the, best, the best of the big images of universe and skies and mountains of God and the ocean and its vast depths. As if he's scratching at the surface of just trying to explain and describe just how awesome God is. You know, they say that the, the, the Hubble telescope is just it's scratching the surface of the depths of the universe. And, and yet David compares God's love to the universe, saying it, it fills it. In fact, it can't even contain it. It's a, um, it's a love that creates and on a massive level, but on a personal level. It's a love that speaks, a love that furnishes and supplies, uh, a love that, that abounds in, in delight. It's a, it's a love that pursues the fallen. It's a love that doesn't give up pursuing sinners. It's a love that makes promises that we don't deserve it's a love that became human flesh and walked among us. It's a, it's, a, it's a love that suffers for the sake of another. It's a love that willingly and gladly allows himself to be crucified, not for his sin, but for the sin of his people. A love that raises from the dead. A love that heals hearts. A love that will one day bring the death of death. A love that will wipe tears personally from the, from the eyes of God's people and wipe out death forever. A love that forgives can understand a little bit of why he started with your steadfast love, O Lord, extends, extends to the heavens. You know, he says that word three times in the psalm. That's the one characteristic of God that gets three. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. How precious, O Lord, is your steadfast love and continue your steadfast love to those who know you. You know, at the center of, of the endless universe of God's being, we might say at the, at the center of the, the endless galaxy of God's being is this thing that's called the steadfast love of God. And it's that that David finds fulfilling to his soul. And not just in a theological way. This isn't just a theological declaration of what he knows God to be. This is something he experiences in his soul. So you have these words, how precious. That's a heart word. How precious. It's like he's eating the the best food you can possibly imagine. How precious, priceless, enjoyable, um, beautiful is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast. There's another pleasure word. They feast on the abundance of your house, where you live, where your presence abides. And you give them the drink from the river of your delight. It's as if God takes a, a, a ladle and dips it into the ocean of his, own, of his own delight, and then he pours it into the mouths of people who look to him. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. 
I mean, all of these layer upon layer of expressions of just how, how wonderful, awesome, beautiful, glorifying God is, not just in the reality of who He is, but in, but in, in who He is to the human soul. Therein, church, is the one place, the fountain, where we find our sense of filling. Not in created things, not in jobs, not in careers, not in marriages, not in children, not in babies or families, or location, location, location. But a heart that knows it's loved by God and that love um, cannot be contained by the height, depth, width, or breadth of the universe. And it really does fill to those who believe. And it is the food of those who have been awakened by the Spirit of God. And then, if this is the reality, this is why he's a man after God's own heart. Because he knows where his center is. He knows what fills him up. And it's nothing that you can touch or see with your hands or your eyes. But God himself. And, and when that becomes the filling center of your life, then, then you can do different kinds of work. Everything from you know, sweeping floors, cleaning toilets, changing diapers, or arguing in a courtroom or preaching sermons. And be filled regardless of the task. Because your center is in the fountain, which is God himself. We have to recognize a lie for a lie. Um, in a church, we can't accept the fact that, that Satan's brilliant enough to just repackage the age-old lie in new language of fulfillment. And that we will easily just gulp it down without ever questioning, and then find ourselves feeling empty and trying to fill ourselves with things that do not satisfy because we have listened to the lie. Now, I, I, uh, this is very personal, this particular message, and this particular idea is personal for me because there have been times where I have bought into the lie only to find out later. One of those times was, was uh, early in my time here at Parkway, it's, it's been almost 15 years to the day when I came here for the first time and I wore a suit and felt horribly out of context because people in California and especially Parkway don't wear suits. Now look what I've done. I'm, I've completely <laughs> descended the, my how the fallen have fallen farther. Um, but I, I, I came with a sense of, and I didn't, I wouldn't say it this way, but I, but I, but afterwards I see it this way, is, is I, I had this um, unstated belief, a functional belief, that pastoral ministry was going to be personally rewarding and fulfilling. And about three years into it, I, I, I went into a time of crisis, and my wife will tell you this, um, in which I, I shared it with some close friends. I... Out of it came a fasting and praying because something wasn't right. Um, because I, I, I felt um, the burden of being a pastor. Now, understand this. This church is an amazing church. I, I kind of couldn't have imagined a better, better place to come. I mean that. But there are parts of the, the job of pastoring that are, that are quite difficult. I didn't anticipate that, and I, and I found myself feeling burdened and not fulfilled. I mean, one of the most devastating things is to, to watch a couple that my wife and I had broken bread with 
Multiple times our, our son took his first steps in their apartment and to watch their, their love for each other and their marriage just dissolve before us. Those are hard moments. And I just found myself not fulfilled in my career field. And I'll never forget a conversation that I had with a man, a man who's known as a, a fairly respectable Christian speaker. We met at Chevy's, and I just, I wanted counsel. That's what you do, right? I mean, I want what the Lord wants. I, what, what's going on? Something's not right here. And, um, and I told him my scenario. I said, you know, I'm just, like, the enjoyment level of what I do is just, um, it's, not, it's not there. I enjoy some of it. I don't enjoy all of it. And, um, and he had this uh, percentage thing. He says, well, I, I kind of believe that if you've got to have so much percentage of joy, then you, then you should stick with it. And, and if not, then perhaps you should move on. That was his advice to me. And uh, I say this with a sense of, of, of shame, but you just need to know this is part of everyone's journey. Everybody has to, has to face up to these things. Um, mine was the crisis of, of 13, 12, 12, 13 years ago. But that's what he said. He said, if, if you're not feeling fulfilled, you probably should, should move on. And, and I argued with him at that point, not to be argumentative, but because I'm wrestling with the Scripture on this. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Bible saying, okay, but, 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 but Moses, you know? I mean, God said Moses found him while he was shepherding sheep and said, I want you to go down to Egypt to, to free my people. And Moses said, I don't want to go. It's not a particularly fulfilling ministry in terms of the intrinsic experience of having people not like you. I mean, that's it. He's got to go down and, and face the, not only just Pharaoh, but he's, he doesn't want to speak. He's, perhaps he's feeling a little bit shy out of, out of, his, out of his league. He's got, to, he's got to lead a people who will constantly badger him. Yeah, that's enjoyable. Another example I gave to this guy I was speaking to, I said, well, and then there's, there's Jeremiah. The Lord said, you're going to be a prophet. And Jeremiah basically says, if I'm reading right, I don't want to be a prophet. And the Lord's like, I don't really care. You're going to be a prophet anyway. And nobody listens to him. Imagine being a preacher. Nobody, not one convert in your whole life. Not a lot of fulfillment in that experience. And I could go on. Jonah certainly didn't feel fulfilled in his ministry to the Ninevites. Or, and then there, it just kept coming back to the night that Jesus was betrayed. And, and he's wrestling with the fact that I, part of me doesn't want to drink the cup. The cup of crucifixion, the, the, the cup of the wrath of God on me in place of the many. I mean, who wants that? Is he going to find fulfillment in drinking down the wrath of the Lord? I mean, you get the sense that at that point, there was a part of him that wanted out. So I, I, I asked him these questions, and I, I said, so what, what do you think? I mean, this kind of leads me to believe if God calls, you stick with it, regardless of how you feel. And his answer to me was, I think those are exceptions, not the norm. And, um, and I went away. I, I, as I said, I, res- I, I respected him. And, and I went away, and I really deeply weighed what he said. And, um, and I prayed over it. And I came to the conclusion, settled the conclusion, that he was wrong. Um, not because I'm smart, but because I just kept praying and asking God to bring me illumination and light. And, uh, and I, I, I came to that passage where Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And I think that means you deny the fallen self-centered self. Um, we still get a self. It's just a new self. 
but to not deny the personal, private, self-centered dreams of fulfillment in this life, and instead take up a cross. Now, in no world that I know of is a cross a fulfilling thing. It's an instrument of pain, torture, and execution. Not going to find fulfillment in the cross itself, which is the Christian life of bearing up in love for the sake of Christ ultimately and, and, and one another. So where does, the, where, where does the pleasure then come from? Where does the, the fulfillment come from? It doesn't come from the cross itself or the task of bearing it. The fulfillment comes in who we do it for and who we do it with. I, I remember meditating on, on Philippians 3 where Paul is rejoicing in, 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 in sharing in the sufferings of Christ because he had fellowship with him. And I turned a corner in that crisis and I, I realized that something in me had bought into the lie that I was supposed to extract fullness out of my career. And my career disappointed me. And the Lord said it was never about that. You know where your fulfillment comes? It doesn't come from what you do. It comes from the fact that you do it with me and for me. And then it turned a corner in my life. I actually now enjoy what I do. I, I, I do, but it's not the center. And it, my jo- I'm not trying to make my job into something it's not. I'm not believing the lie in this sense anymore. And I wonder how many of us have bought into that lie. And you're, you're trying to extract a sense of fullness out of things that were never meant to, to satisfy your soul. You find yourself empty over and over and over again. It's because we keep trying to squeeze the wrong stuff. And Jesus is like, you know, you can, you, can, you can find fullness regardless of what you do. I mean, think about Jesus was a carpenter, back-breaking, blister-producing work. Uh, Peter was a guy who caught fish and cleaned them. That, that might sound fun to you guys who fish like once a year, but... You know, for a guy who's gutting fish, smelly fish every day. Or, or Paul, I mean, the, the, the brilliant mind of the Apostle Paul, and yet he mends tents. Do you think he thought, oh, I just love needle and thread. Love it. This is so awesome. No, he, the only thing that gave him fullness in that moment with the needle and thread was knowing that Jesus was with him doing it, and it was for him. Now, if Jesus came into this room right now in all of his glory, And you, as a believer, know that he's given everything for you and to you because of his death and resurrection. And he said to to me, or to you, would you you take off my shoe? Like, what would be your response if he was here right now? I think most of us would get on our hands and knees and say, I am not worthy of touching these shoes. It's an honor to even get this close to you. I think to John the Baptist, I'm not even worthy to, to, to unlatch these things. But would it be a joy, a tremendous honor? Like the psalmist says, I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than living in the tent of the riotous wicked. I'd rather stand at a gate just to be near him. And if, if, if we understood that the tasks in our life do not produce the joy, but what produces the joy is the fact that Jesus is with us in the task, and we're doing it for him. That revolutionizes everything and changes the whole nature of the game. You know, Mother Teresa, regardless of what you think of her theology, was very insightful. And she discovered this early on. 
And I was blown away by this, this remark that was made by one of her biographers where they wrote, when asked about how God had called her to work amongst the poor, and, and working amongst the poor is glamorized by many to be a very fulfilling thing, but if you get into the thick of it, I've read enough biographies to know it's not the case. It's difficult, painful, suffering work. There's a delight in it, but it doesn't fill the cup. And she wrote, she replied, um, I've got to reread the quote so you get it. When asked about how God had called her to work amongst the poor, she replied that God had not called her to work among the poor. He called her to follow him and led her there. The joy of ministry is the simple fact that Jesus called her to be there. And he would be with her there. And she would do it for him. And that's where our sense of fullness comes from. So the most important thing we can say to each other and to our kids isn't, well, find something that fulfills you. Now, the necessary parental qualifications of trying to help your child discern, all in place. We do have a responsibility. But the first order of business in the Christian heart, in our parenting, in our, in, in our marriages, is are we following Jesus? Are we doing this within and for him, regardless of what we do? And if he calls a person into, into teaching, then teach with him, in him, and for him there. But don't for one minute believe that the job itself will fulfill you or that a relationship itself will fulfill you. There's only one thing, and that is being in really close proximity to the steadfast love of God. That's it. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, if, if you've listened, I'm hoping that you'll be thinking right now, have I bought into the lie, and am I living out that lie? Because um, I offer this to you because, one, the Scripture does, but, but because God loves us enough to, to reveal lies in our lives and things that have shackled us. And, and I hope that you'll hear his loving voice say, don't believe that anymore. Stop operating on the principle of the, of, the, of the serpent. And if you want to follow something that will satisfy your heart, you follow me. Trust in me. No matter what you do or where you do it or who you do it with, it is being with him and him and doing things for him that brings fullness to life. I hope you'll answer that, that, that question for yourself. Which are you listening to um, and where are you trying to find fullness? God or somewhere out there, because there's only one source, and he's the fountain. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that right now in the, in the minds and the hearts and the consciences of those who are sitting here, I pray that you would grant a change for those who truly know you and have tasted your love and you know that they know that your love is better than life but maybe they've been distracted or they've been blown off course I just pray that you would reseal within their heart the resolve and the desire to find their fullness and their, their foundation their satisfaction in you and you alone and I pray you'd provide the grace to do that Lord I also pray for those who might have come here to seek fulfillment um, 
in a way that you're not the center of. Either a maybe broken marriage or a, a broken career or just a broken life. And I just pray that you would direct them to you. Not to other people or to other events or other places or other things to try and fill the void, but I pray that you would draw them to you. You're the one who gives us from the river of your delights. You're the one who gives us a feast from your house. How precious, O Lord, is your steadfast love. And in the presence of Christ, there's fullness of joy. And I pray that you give them the heart to believe them, not just with their heads, but with their hearts. That you are, in fact, everything and the one and only one who fills all things. I pray this in Jesus' holy and awesome name.